At Morgan Stanley, old school hard work meets bold new thinking. At 88 years old, we still see the world with the wonder of new eyes, helping you discover untapped possibilities and relentlessly working with you to make them real. Old school grit, new world ideas. Morgan Stanley. To learn more, visit morganstanley.com slash why us. Investing involves risk. Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, LLC. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer, one of the voices behind the CNBC podcast Squawk Pod. In these times of uncertainty, we want to make sure we're bringing you, our listeners, as much information as possible as quickly as we can. That's why we're sharing with you now a CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil. Listen in. Good evening. I'm Scott Wapner on day 107 of the coronavirus crisis. Breaking news tonight. President Trump cuts funding to the World Health Organization, and the virus has now killed 10,000 New Yorkers. Stocks on fire today. The bulls keep picking up lost ground. The future is about as clear as mud. But there are questions about how sustainable this rally is. That's just a process that uh, will perhaps be the most challenging. New details on how several states plan to reopen. We want to return to normal life. Our country's going to be open. And what the federal government is planning. This CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil, begins right now. Here's Scott Wapner. It is good to have you with us on a very busy Tuesday night. The president still speaking at the White House as we speak, cutting funding tonight for the World Health Organization. That announcement just coming moments ago. We're also learning more now about the president's plan to reopen the economy. For that, we go to Kayla Tausche in Washington, who joins us with more. Kayla, what can you tell us? Well, Scott, the president spent a lengthy part of his remarks this evening talking about the CEOs who will be advising the White House in its effort to figure out exactly how and when to reopen the economy. President Trump uh, rattling off a list including the top names from Silicon Valley to Wall Street uh, to hedge funds to fast casual restaurants, even labor groups, lawmakers. The list goes on and on. The full slate of members hasn't been released because it's still taking shape at this hour, I'm told. But President Trump said that he spoke with all 50 governors today and that the government is very close to finalizing a plan to reopen the economy and that he believes nearly half of states are ready. Listen. Actually, there are over 20 that are in extremely good shape. And we think we're going to be able to get them open fairly quickly and then others will follow. The federal government will be watching them very closely. And will be there to help. A White House official tells me that the corporate advisory group will be there to figure out a plan to prime the economy for reopening when the medical task force, including uh, the officials from the Health and uh, Human Services uh, Department, as well as the CDC, give the green light for that to happen. To that end, a separate task force focused on the health part of the crisis has been working on its own models about figuring out exactly when a reopening could take place. Dr. Anthony Fauci 
Fauci, the top infectious disease expert in this country, did an interview with the Associated Press today and said in that interview, we have yet to have something in place that is efficient and that we can rely on. And we're not there yet in terms of having a testing mechanism, Scott, to actually reopen the economy. And then there is the funding to the World Health Organization. President Trump this evening saying that funding would be halted as the U.S. pursues a review of how that multilateral organization handled the coronavirus pandemic. Scott? Going to be controversial on many fronts, not only the funding, Kayla, to the WHO, but now the Fauci comments of we're not there yet up against uh, the president tonight saying that they want to open uh, fairly quickly and saying that he is going to, and he used the word authorize, governors to open their states. That in and of itself is going to run up against uh, some roadblocks potentially in states like New York and California. And many of those governors, Scott, have timelines that are much different from what the president himself has laid out. He and the Treasury Secretary have suggested a reentry into the economy by May. Even Dr. Fauci himself had suggested a rolling reentry was possible in May. But when you think of states like California, who have stay-at-home orders in place indefinitely, or even states like Virginia, where that goes through June 10th, and states like Utah, where schools are not going to be back in session this year, it's hard to imagine exactly how that rollout would take place. Uh, and exactly where we could see this scattershot return uh, underway. Massachusetts, May 4th, Connecticut, May 20th. I saw your tweet earlier listing some of those stay-at-home orders that may not match up with what the president is thinking about. Kayla, thanks very much. That's Kayla Tausche in Washington with the latest there. As we said, governors on both coasts working on their plans to reopen states. Contessa Brewer joining us now with the plan for California's Gavin Newsom. Contessa? So Governor Newsom, Scott, says that there's a specific checklist of essentials before California can modify its stay-at-home orders. The first is the ability to test, to contact trace, to isolate and support those who have COVID or those who have been exposed. Secondly, they want to prevent infection for those most at risk for more severe coronavirus. Hospitals have to be able to handle any new surges, and they need to develop therapeutics to meet demand. Schools, Child care and businesses have to be able to support physical distance between people, and the state must be able to determine when and if it needs to reissue stay-at-home orders. The governor's warning, this new normal will look very different. You may be having dinner uh, with a waiter wearing gloves, maybe a face mask, a dinner where the menu is disposable, uh, where the tables, half of the tables in that restaurant uh, no longer appear, where your temperature is checked before you walk in to the establishment. These are likely scenarios. Nationwide, other governors are considering similar approaches, data-based approaches, even as protests are breaking out, as we saw today in Raleigh, North Carolina, from demonstrators demanding that the state reopen. One person was arrested there. Governors have a real challenge, Scott, ahead of them trying to manage these expectations about what the path forward looks like. It's going to be hard to get everybody on the same page. Contessa Brewer, thank you very much tonight. Dr. Scott Gottlieb is the former FDA commissioner and a CNBC contributor. He is with us live once again. Dr. Gottlieb, it's good to see you. Your reaction first and foremost to these plans from the president to open, in his words, fairly quickly. Well, I think what the president said is fairly consistent with... um, 
with what we've been discussing. Um, frankly, I think that we're going to probably, at some point in May, we're going to see sustained reductions heading into the end of April, early May in this country, across most parts of the country. And contemplate at some point in May gradually reopening aspects of the economy. I think it's going to be a slow process. I think we're going to, you know, take some steps and then pause to reassess and look at whether or not there's an increased rate of infection as we start to slowly reintroduce activity. So this is something that's going to roll out over the course of May or June. And what the president says, consistent with what we talked about last night, which is I think the administration is likely to put out a set of principles or guidelines that but leaves most of the discretion to the states to make these decisions. And I think what you're likely to see across the country is different parts of the country doing this at different points in time. I think the parts of the country that were very hard hit, like New York City, are probably going to be more cautious about reintroducing a lot of social activity for fear that it could cause a reignition in uh, viral transfer. The president also said this evening that he spoke with you a short time ago. He made those remarks just a few moments ago. Can you tell us what you discussed with the president tonight? Well, I prefer not to comment on my discussions. I I actually wasn't aware that the president made those remarks because I was getting prepped for this while the president was in that press conference. But uh, I had spoken to him earlier in the day today. Yeah. Are are you if if these states have stay at home orders that go far beyond what the president is talking about tonight, how is that going to work? For example, Massachusetts, May 4th, Connecticut, May 20th, Virginia, June 10th and California. Dr. Gottlieb is still at stay at home indefinitely and other states are in pseudo lockdown as well. Well, look, the states are going to reassess um, where they are in terms of this epidemic and what steps they can take over the course of this month heading into next month. I don't think any state's likely to do anything heading into the end of April. I think once you get into May, we're going to be at a point where we're going to see sustained reduction in new cases for a period of time. And what we outlined in the report that we put out is you want to wait an additional two weeks after you start to see sustained reductions in new cases and then contemplate slowly reintroducing activity. That puts you sort of in mid-May around the country. But I think this is going to be very gradual. What states are going to do is they're going to say this category of businesses can start to come back, but we prefer most people still continue to telework where they can. Perhaps people who are older or more susceptible to the infection, they should continue to stay at home, but businesses could bring back 50% of their workforce uh, initially with certain kinds of measures in place, fever checks, testing questionnaires for whether or not you have signs or symptoms of coronavirus, maybe some testing. Um, So you're going to see measures put in place to increase vigilance around work sites to make sure that you reduce the risk that someone could be infected and not bring everyone back at the same time and certainly not bring all businesses back. And then they're going to want to pause and they're going to want to watch the data for another week or two to see if there's any uptick in infections or you get a continued decline in new infections to make sure that the increased social interaction isn't causing an upswing in infections. I think that's likely how this is going to play out. And what that means is this is going to be very gradual over the course of May or June. It's not going to be like flipping a switch and we're all back. It's going to be a slow evolution where certain activity is brought back in certain ways. So I think the states are going to do this in a responsible fashion. That's what they're contemplating right now. What does that look like and how do you do that in a responsible, gradual fashion so that you can test along the way and make sure you're not doing any harm? So though you may not want to discuss the phone call you had with the president, can you tell us tonight, are you comfortable with the timeline that he has set forward? Well, look, I think the administration is likely to stick with what's in place right now, which is continued social distancing through the end of this month. I think what's likely to happen, and I don't know specifically what the details that they're working out are. Do you agree with it? 
I think giving discretion to do I, do I, I think giving discretion to the governors to start making individual decisions heading into May makes sense. I think the, you know the, this is something that's been led by the governors. I think it's going to continue to be led by the governors. I don't think the governors are going to act irresponsibly. The governors have acted in a responsible fashion. So I think you're going to see a lot of caution on the part of local officials and governors. I think the hard-hit states are likely to be very slow in bringing back activity. There's parts of the country that haven't been as hard-hit, thankfully, where there is less dense population. They, they naturally social distance rural parts of the country that might be able to do things earlier than cities like Miami or New York or Chicago or Detroit. They've been very hard hit. But the governors, Whitmer in Michigan, Murphy in New Jersey, Cuomo, Hogan, Baker in Massachusetts, they've been very responsible. And I would expect to see them to take a cautious approach to slowly reintroducing activity at some point in May into June. That's probably appropriate. If we continue on the trajectory we're on right now, I think we can contemplate slowly reintroducing some activity in the second half of May, probably. But we need to be very careful about it. We need to be very deliberate and have clear milestones along the way that we're measuring to make sure that you're continuing to see a sustained decline in cases. Remember, we're, and I'll pause here, but we're not going to get to a point where there's no cases. We're going to continue to report cases all through the summer, into the fall, into the winter. You know, until we get to a vaccine, we're going to have to learn to live with this virus. And that's going to mean we're going to have to change aspects of how we live to mitigate the risk that this virus could reignite. And we have large outbreaks again, like what's happening in Singapore and Hong Kong, where they're both having a second wave. But let's be clear. You think this decision to reopen should be left to each individual governor and not the president or his administration? I do. And in fact, that's what I heard today um, out of some of the reporting that the administration said. And again, I wasn't able to monitor the whole press conference, but um, but that they they indicated that they're going to leave discretion to the governors to go forward with their own individual plans. I mean, that's very consistent with how the administration has been approaching this, where they've given deference to the governors to make decisions. If you look at the guidelines on social distancing that the White House put out, they're sort of broad guidelines. It was up to the governors to implement them in a very specific fashion. And so I think you're likely to see the same thing on the way out of this, where the governors are given discretion. You know, the administration is going to be out there saying we want to try to restore activity. And I think that that's appropriate. As we come out of this, you know, you want to be leaning forward. There's a public health cost to this shutdown that is also very significant. But we need to do this very carefully because we, we can't afford to have a situation where you have a reignition in cases and then we have to reimplement these measures. That would be disastrous to the economy and the country. So we need to we need to go through this carefully, successfully and come out of this on the other side where there's sort of a baseline level of cases on a daily basis that's low enough that we can use traditional tools of public health to prevent another epidemic. The other headline I'd like to discuss with you quickly before I let you go is this defunding or at least holding back funding of the WHO. Does that make sense to you tonight? Well, look, The WHO, I think, had a lot of missteps here in terms of what they said early on with respect to China. I think there are valid concerns about the behavior of the WHO in this in this epidemic. But I think this is the wrong time to be pulling funding from the WHO. I think there's a risk that this virus becomes epidemic in the southern hemisphere. The WHO is going to be important to trying to mitigate that risk. And if it does become epidemic in the southern hemisphere, there's then a risk that it comes back into the northern hemisphere, into the United States in the fall of the winter. And that's a scenario that I'm concerned about. So it's the wrong time to be doing that. But I believe I'm hopeful that they'll they'll, you know, sort of restart the funding after a period of, of examining, you know, what the WHO didn't didn't do. Frankly, the WHO wasn't committing to a very earnest look 
um, at the early days of when this virus first started to propagate and what could have been done differently and what China did wrong. Uh, there was a point in time, per potentially, when if China was more honest with itself and more honest with the world, we might have been able to contain this to China. They might have been able to take steps to contain this inside China, but they weren't being forthcoming with the world and they were concealing information internally. And I think that needs to be looked at. I think we need to understand what went wrong. And the WHO was reluctant to take that kind of a step. Hopefully this prods them to do it. And then we come back and we can unfreeze that funding. Dr. Gottlieb, we appreciate your time tonight. The moral of this story, you never know when your private conversations with the president are going to be revealed on national television. We'll see you again soon, probably tomorrow night. <laughs> well, I didn't reveal it. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> no, you did not. Thank you very much. That's Dr. Gottlieb tonight. Breaking tonight as well. Treasury Secretary Mnuchin saying nearly a dozen airlines will take government aid to keep employees on the payroll. Our Phil LeBeau has more on that breaking story tonight as well. Phil? Scott, they've been negotiating how much each airline will get and the terms uh, basically since all the airlines applied on uh, basically middle of last week and towards the end of last week, they finalized the deal. And here's basically what's, what's happening. The Treasury Department will be allocating a total of about $25 billion to airlines. We're going to run down how much each of the airlines will be receiving. About 70% of this will be direct money they do not have to repay, the other 30% coming in low-interest loans to the Treasury Department. So you've got Delta receiving $5.4 billion. Southwest, $3.2 billion. One billion of that will be in the form of a low-interest loan. JetBlue, just under a billion at $935.8 million. And American, $5.8 billion. And again, these grants are specifically designed so that the airlines can keep their staff in place, their employment, generally speaking, in place at least through September 30th so there are no widespread layoffs. What does this mean for the airlines and how important is it? Tomorrow you do not want to miss our exclusive interview with Doug Parker, CEO of American Airlines. We will talk with him about how important it is for his airline to receive $5.8 billion. We're also going to get more details from the other airlines, Scott, in terms of how much they'll be receiving as part of these payroll grants. And don't forget, Scott, there is now the other $25 billion that is out there for airline aid. That comes in the form of loans. Still waiting to find out exactly what those terms will be. To be clear, Phil, though, th th this took longer than maybe it was expected to because the airlines themselves, they wanted all cash. They wanted grants. They didn't want loans. And we're also learning tonight of warrants of 10 percent of the loan. So investors, taxpayers, I should say, are going to have a chance potentially at some upside. Right. When the terms were first presented to the airlines, it is last Thursday. And the airlines made it very clear they were not happy about a part of these grants being loans and also the warrants. They knew the warrants were going to be there, but it was really the loan component because they're already highly levered, Scott, and they're going to be taking out more loans over the next several months as they try to get through a really, really rough period for them in terms of really very little revenue. Phil, we appreciate it. We'll look forward to your interview tomorrow with Doug Parker. That's Phil LeBeau on the phone for us tonight. Let's get our first look at futures after a pretty big day on Wall Street. Let's take a look. Mixed, uh, modest moves across the board. S&P, NASDAQ, in the red, Dow is in the green by a few points. Comes after, I said, a strong rally on Wall Street today. The Dow rising more than 550 points or more than 2%. The broader S&P 500 and NASDAQ were even better than that. 
Nasdaq was up almost 4%. Amazon hit an all-time high, as did Nasdaq, uh, as did uh, Netflix, excuse me. The Dow was helped by 5% gains in Raytheon, Walgreens, Apple, but oil prices slid 10% as investors were concerned upcoming production cuts would not be enough. Let's bring in now Liz Young, BNY Mellon Investment Management Director of Strategy, and Josh Brown. He is a halftime report trader, the CEO as well of Ridholtz Wealth Management. Good to have you both with us, Liz. This momentum just keeps going. How long can it take us? Look, Scott, I, I would look at this and say a market in motion will stay in motion until it gets surprised. And there's been nothing in this data so far that has surprised us. We knew that the earnings data was going to be bad. We knew the unemployment data was going to be bad. But the things that would surprise us on the downside are that this lasts further into the third quarter. I think the market has assumed that the second quarter is a throwaway. If this starts to last into the third quarter, that's a downside surprise. And we could get to the point where we retest new lows or even blow through those those lows of March 23rd. Josh, does this make sense to you, what you've witnessed for the last week or so? Um, a lot of a lot of things don't make sense to me, Judge. I'm definitely struggling. And I would tell you that uh, anyone who says they have more answers than they do questions is either lying or is so stupid that they don't even know what they don't know. So now you just had the best 15 day period for the for the stock, the U.S. stock market going back to 1933, 27 percent gain in 15 days. The last time that happened, FDR was in the White House and Babe Ruth was on the Yankees. We have not seen a period like this, and there really is no playbook. And I'm going to tell you something that I think a lot of people are potentially getting wrong that could have huge consequences for how you're investing right now, which is we're all talking about the reopening of the economy as though it's a positive catalyst. Judge, what if it's a negative catalyst? Hear me out on this. Try to imagine a scenario where people are faced with the choice of staying home or going to a restaurant and having to lift a mask up to put a fork full of food in their mouth. How many people are going? Imagine the airlines that you and Phil were just talking about. What if they have to fly half the amount of people in each flight? Um, they're going to have to charge twice the amount. How many people are flying unless they absolutely have to? Very few. So what if the governors begin to slowly, re quote, reopen the economy and they announce that state by state, people can start to kind of go back to their activities. And it's a negative catalyst because people realize, oh, my God, so much has changed. I don't know when we're going to get the economy of 2019 back. So I do think a vaccine, whenever it happens, will be positive. But listen to what Scott Gottlieb just told you. The worst thing that can happen is we start to roll back some of these stay at home orders. And all of a sudden, people get a little too comfortable and we have a resurgence. What would that do to the stock market? Forget about the public health situation. What would that do to investor sentiment? I think it would crush investor sentiment. So I'm as worried about uh, everything else as I am about the idea of reopening the economy. And people are disappointed at how slowly things start to go back to normal, if at all. Liz, the last word goes to you. Yeah, I, I agree with Josh. I think this has been an overreaction on both sides. When this all started, the market started to price in an L-shaped unrecovery, I'll call it. And now we got fiscal and monetary support. There are, there are really only two reasons that a market's going to rally. Either we get fiscal and monetary support or the expectations of growth and earnings markedly improve. 
that hasn't happened. We certainly haven't seen an improvement in growth and earnings expectations for the rest of the year. And now the market is suddenly pricing in what looks more like a V-shaped recovery. It's not like flipping a switch, as Gottlieb said earlier today. It's going to take a long time, and we're probably not completely out of the woods. We're going to have adjusted behavior and adjusted investor behavior until we get a vaccine and we can feel like this is really behind us. Good having you both with us tonight. Liz Young, Josh Brown, we'll see both of you again soon. There is a lot more ahead on this CNBC special report. Markets in turmoil. Is the middle seat gone forever? Are turnaround times longer? Ahead tonight, what it will be like to fly once people start traveling again. Plus, sports brings, I believe, the world together. What's it like for one big-time superstar athlete to be forced to stay at home along with everyone else during the coronavirus crisis? Before the break, images from around this great nation on the 107th day of this global pandemic. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. A check on where we stand with the virus now. General Motors says the first batch of critical care ventilators it produced are ready for delivery. The company will ship 600 units this month and is contracted to build 30,000 by the end of August. The Transportation Department says $10 billion in grants is now available to the nation's airports. And one million loans have been approved through the Small Business Association's payroll protection program, totaling nearly $250 billion. Well, the world of professional sports, as you know, has been shut down now for more than a month. Tonight, one hockey star, P.K. Subban of the New Jersey Devils, in his own words about what it's like for someone so active to be on lockdown. Health is number one. That's the reality. And even though I miss the game and I miss my teammates, I miss my job, you know, I want to see people healthy. I want to see people back to living a normal life. Every morning, Lindsay and I get up early, we work out, and we're just trying to be as routine as possible, and that's worked well for us. The point of the show is to keep fans engaged. I know that there's no hockey on, there's no sports on, 
but it gives them an opportunity to interact with players. And also it's fun. It's you! <laughs> Was really excited to give it a shot. And so far it's been really rewarding. It's always a challenge to step into something that you don't traditionally do every day and try to excel at it. There's so many people out there that are suffering. It's very, very hard to think about hockey in the season right now until those people land on their feet. Health is the most important thing. But one thing for sure, sports brings, I believe, the world together. It's definitely been an interesting time, interesting experience, but I think we're all going to get better from it. And that was P.K. Subban of the New Jersey Devils tonight in his own words. Well, as America readies to reopen, how will airline travel be affected by the new social distancing norms? Joining us now is one of the fathers of low-budget airlines, former Spirit Airlines CEO Ben Baldanza. Ben, welcome. It's good to talk to you tonight. Great to be with you, Scott. Thank you. We'll get to the future of air travel in a minute, but your reaction first and foremost to this bailout package that was unveiled just earlier tonight. Well, it's obviously great that airline employees can breathe a sigh of relief tonight and know that they're going to continue to be able to get paid at least through September as a result of this for the airlines that take this. It is disappointing, however, though, that something called a grant comes with 30% loan that has to be repaid back and 10% equity struck at prices after the industry's lost billions of dollars in value. Though others would say the airlines didn't prepare accordingly for a rainy day. They bought back too much stock. They asked for $50 billion, Ben, and they bought back the five or six largest airlines bought back around that same amount over the last 10-year period. Why shouldn't they be accountable for that? Well, they should be accountable for that. But what they also did, that's that's one piece of what they did with their cash. They also invested hundreds of billions of dollars in new airplanes, in better product, in things that have been good for customers. So the airplanes flying today burn a lot less fuel. They're much more efficient. They're easier to maintain. They're more comfortable. And so they've spent a lot of money on a lot of things. Some of that was uh, share buybacks. And yes, they would have had more cash had they not done that. However, had they had that more cash up to that, there would have been a lot of antsy investors saying, what are you holding all this cash for? Why isn't there a dividend or something to help us? Don't you think taxpayers, though, should have a chance to have some of the upside here? I think they should. I think they absolutely should. And one of the ways they there's a couple of ways they do that. First of all, in the second piece of this with loans, I think the idea of of, you know, interest, of course, but also um, warrants and things make perfect sense. In the grants, it's all about airline employment. And so what consumers, what taxpayers get out of that is that the airline industry is ready to go when consumers are ready to go again. What you don't want to have happen is when we feel comfortable being social again, that it's going to take months and months for the airlines to get ready because everyone's been laid off and they have to bring people back and train them. So the airlines and the transportation network are fundamental to bringing the economy back. And that's the payback here. You know, also, the while the companies will be getting this money to pay their employees, they'll still be paying the payroll tax to the government as well through that time. And the government is saving because all these people are not filing unemployment insurance. What is the new normal going to look like when we do get back in the air and travel again? Well, I think the new normal will be a couple things. I think it'll be a, a new view of biological safety to go with operational safety. Airlines have been good about operational safety and putting metrics to that and measuring that and becoming safe. 
But now adding things like are our surfaces clean? Are the planes not just clean, but are they disinfected? Do our employees understand how to deal with issues that come up from nervous customers or from issues? Also, I think the industry has to do a better job explaining to people how the air circulates in the airplane and how it recirculates and is filtered so well, much better than in a restaurant or in an office building, so that when you're comfortable going to a restaurant, you should be comfortable getting on a plane again. Now, whether or not people are going to sit further apart, that becomes a bigger issue, like your last guest said, because are we going to accept that fares are going to go up if you can't put as many people on the airplane? That's a tougher call, I think. Well, we're not going to be able to put the same number of people on, a, on an airplane again, how, at least for a while. How, how could we? How could we sit well, three across from, from each other? Well, sitting three across, the risk in the way the plane air circulates isn't so much what the person next to you does. It's what are you touching on the tray table? What are you touching on the seats? When you go to the restroom, what are you touching on the handle? That's where the biggest risk of transference is in the airplane, not someone next to you or in a row behind you or in front of you coughing or sneezing. And I'm not saying that doesn't create risk, but it doesn't create as much risk as the others. And again, with the circulation in the airplane, I think that it's not that bad on the airplane. Now, if you want to say no one can sit in the middle seat anymore, that's going to take a third of the seats out of the airplane. But the cost of that flight aren't going to go down by a third. So everybody's going to have to pay 33 percent more. Plus the cost of our meal, uh, if, if in fact we get hungry. <laughs> right. Ben, it's that's good right. having you on. I appreciate your time tonight. Ben Baldanza joining us. Here's what else is coming up on this CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil. One former Northeastern governor on what has to happen to reopen the region and the rest of the country. Plus, the major social and economic changes we should expect to see when the crisis ebbs. This CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil, is coming right back. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. What we announced today, we think, is an unprecedented collaboration between two of the world's biggest vaccines manufacturers. The hunt for a way to stop the virus intensifies. Anyone who's buying stock today because they think the vaccine's around the corner, that's a mistake. Even without an effective vaccine, investors keep piling into stocks, which rallied again today. I just wonder how you're going to be able to convince the public that you're not an incubator of infectious diseases. And big business tries to find a path forward. This CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil, continues. Once again, here's Scott Wapner. Welcome back. After a big day on Wall Street, let's take you straight to the futures and showing right now it looks like a mostly flat open all three of the major averages just modestly in the red this hour. Today, stocks rallying on growing optimism over the outlook for the virus outbreak. The Dow rising more than 550 points, the S&P 500 gaining 3 percent, while the Nasdaq jumping 4 percent, helped by Amazon hitting a new all-time high. 
Well, two of the world's biggest drug companies, Sanofi and GlaxoSmithKline, teaming up to work on a vaccine for the coronavirus. Glaxo CEO Emma Walmsley talking to Jim Cramer tonight about the effort required to get that vaccine. What we announced today we think is an unprecedented collaboration between two of the world's biggest vaccines manufacturers, um, two leaders who are both bringing proven pandemic technologies and scale to develop hopefully an adjuvanted uh, uh, vaccine against COVID-19. We also, of course, both bring significant manufacturing capacity. And if we're successful, uh, you know, that we're hoping to get to hundreds, hundreds of millions of doses uh, by the end of uh, next year, but a lot of work to do. And we're sure the world will need more than uh, one vaccine considering uh, the state of demand. That was the CEO of GlaxoSmithKline tonight, Emma Walmsley, in her own words. Well, as we wait for the pharmaceutical industry to come up with an answer, there are many questions about what society will look like once it's safe for most Americans to leave their homes again. Peter Diamandis is the founder of the X Prize. He's written many books about the future, also happens to be a medical doctor. Peter, welcome. It's good to talk to you tonight. Hi, Scott. Your latest, your latest book is called The Future is Faster Than You Think. Perhaps it needs a bit of a change to The Future is Far Different Than You Thought. So, it, absolutely. But you know, what I talk about in the book is how every single industry is going to change over the decade ahead. And what the pandemic is doing is really accelerating that. We're going to be seeing a wholesale changes in the entire healthcare industry, which today, by the way, is not healthcare, it's sick care, right? The system takes care of you only after you're sick. And we're going to see a transformation really to, I'm going to buy any services that make sure they keep me healthy. We're going to see changes in retail and education, in entertainment. All of these industries are going to be changing. It's just they're going to about to change a lot faster than any of us thought. So what might have been transformations five or 10 years from now, we're seeing right now in the next two or three years. Interesting. We spoke with Walter Isaacson last night who spoke about the, the change in careers that, that people will have. And maybe you're studying uh, genetic technology rather than some of the other coding you would have done as related to a, a computer. Maybe the whole way we think about operating as human beings in the future is going to be changed as a result of this. Yeah, 100%. Uh, the, the question is, what are going to be the uh, tools that an effective CEO is going to need in the future? Uh, and it's no longer just providing stability. It's really how are you agile and imaginative in reinventing your company and creating an agile organization. So it, if you were in any kind of product or service before that was you know, linear, you need to think about how am I going to digitize everything? How am I going to dematerialize, demonetize, and democratize products and services? So a lot of the entrepreneurs that I uh, mentor, the CEOs that I mentor, I'm saying during this downtime, you need to be killing those things that have been slow and laboring and aren't working and take your attention economy, your money, your people, and reinvent them as digital assets the same way that you know, film photography became the digital camera and Kodak went bankrupt and Instagram exploded. Blockbuster and Netflix, that same plays out over and over again. So it's really how are you digitizing? And then it's really a large number of companies. We just saw Glaxo and all of the work on, on vaccines. There are some incredible startups in the biotech space that are moving far more agilely, uh, that are using machine learning, neural nets, and small teams that can move extraordinarily fast to address these issues. 
How do you think we're going to think about our own health moving forward? You are a medical doctor, as I said. Is it going to change? Yeah, it, it is. I spend, in fact, uh, a lot of my, my venture fund investments and a lot of the startups I'm working on are all in the health, longevity, vitality space. So our expectation is most of the system today is, again, sick care. It takes care of you after you're sick. Life insurance pays you after you die. It's completely reversed when it's going to be. Uh, I think we're going to see a lot of the tech companies that are in our homes, Apple, Google, Amazon, really become part of our healthcare providing system that's watching us. It's, it's looking for us. We're constantly monitoring our bodies. And when anything goes out of whack just a little bit, we're alerted. And our AI network looks and says, hey, you know, let's go check on that. Right? I'm a pilot. I drive a Tesla. I don't take off the runway or drive out of my driveway unless everything's in the green, but we know so little about our body, but that is going to change. Uh, we're transforming our world. I know all of us here at home are learning that, hey, I don't have to drive to the store. It can all get delivered to me. You know, retail is gonna change. Those of us homeschooling our kids are gonna say, really? Maybe I should just homeschool them more. A lot of change is coming uh, because we're reinventing our habits while we're home on this global uh, snow day, so to speak. I'm sure it has you thinking about uh, already your, your, your next book. Peter, it's great <laughs> to have you. It's good to have your insights tonight for our viewers. Thanks so much for being with us. A pleasure. Take care. All right, that's Peter Diamandis joining us tonight. There's much more ahead on the CNBC special report. Markets in turmoil. Next tonight, what one former big city mayor and governor of Pennsylvania says must happen to reopen the country. Before the break, images from around the world on the 107th day of the coronavirus crisis. Welcome back. Reopening the economy is the topic on many minds tonight. And joining us now is former Pennsylvania Governor Ed Rendell. He also served as the mayor of Philadelphia. Governor, good to have you with us tonight. Thanks for the time. My pleasure, Scott. How is this going to work? <laughs> your, your guess is as good as mine. No, I think what's going to happen is, uh, if uh, listen to the president, and of course he changes from day to day. Uh, yesterday he was going to give all the orders and he was going to, to the plans for reopening. Now, today, it's the governors that were going to do it. Someone gave him a lesson in the Constitution. But in any event, uh, I think the way it's going to happen is it's going to be a gradual reopening. We're not going to push a button and things are going to be back to normal. In fact, Lord knows when we're going to be back to normal. But I think we'll start with businesses that, and again, this is all based on adequate testing. And regardless of what the president says, we don't have adequate testing now. We don't have testing enough to really reopen with some degree of confidence. But I think we can do bit by bit. More businesses can be added to the list of businesses that are allowed to be open. There can be testing of their employees. Uh, there will be some states, states that are 
more spread out that don't have dense populations will probably be allowed to will be allowed not allowed but will open more quickly than others states that have big cities like new york and philadelphia and san francisco they're going to be probably near the rear end of sure. places that are open how do you how but, do you balance the safety of your residents, and I'm speaking, for example, let's put you back in the chair in, in Pennsylvania. Uh, it's a big state. You have a large city in, in Philadelphia. How do you balance the safety of your residents with wanting to get the economy of a state like that and a city like Philadelphia back going again? Well, it's interesting. The safety of our residents is key to getting the economy back going again. If we open too soon and there's a new outbreak, that not only means we got to go back and do mitigation, but worse still, that would be a, a really damaging blow to the economy. When we open, we better be prepared to stay open and gradually build up. That's the way to rebuild the economy, to have fits and starts, states in mitigation opening up and then going back to mitigation because it didn't work. Uh, that's the most disastrous consequence. So I think the two goals are somewhat self-reinforcing. Uh, Public safety. What's good for public health, reducing the number of cases, reducing the deaths. Those things are important to making sure that the economy can go back and grow steadily. But if you have to make a choice, you make the choice on behalf of public safety, public health, and avoiding death. There are are going to be some states, inevitably, that, that do open as testing is not necessarily in the place that it needs to be. It may have to be on a leap of faith that you're going to be able to ramp up testing to what's required to be able to sustain this, right? If I were governor, I wouldn't do a leap of faith in people's lives. I simply wouldn't. I think our economy will recover. The question is when it recovers. The question is what damage happens to us in the interim. I think the recovery plans have been good. I think we do need more money put into the PPP because that's where the small businesses are and the ones that are least likely to sustain themselves through this. We have to do certain things, but I think we've got to make sure we do it right. We do it gradually. We do it with as much testing as we possibly can. And it's okay to do it in some areas and not in others. But I like the fact that states are building sort of compacts, the seven states in the Northeast and the three states on the West Coast, because there's so much mobility that comes to an open and vibrant economy that it's essential that uh, everybody opens under the same game plan in those areas. Governor, we appreciate the time very much. We'll talk to you again soon. That's Governor Ed Rendell, the former Pennsylvania governor, joining us. You as well. We'll get you caught up on the latest headlines just after this quick break. Here are some of the latest headlines tonight. President Trump halts funding to the World Health Organization while the U.S. reviews what he calls possible mismanaging and covering up the spread of the coronavirus. New York City revising its count now to include more than 3,700 people presumed to have died from the virus, pushing the death toll past 10,000. Stocks rally the Dow rising more than 550 points tonight. Let's give you a final look at futures as well, mixed with modest uh, either losses or a slight gain for the Dow Jones Industrial Average. Go to CNBC.com for up-to-the-minute information on the markets and the virus. We're back at 5 a.m. with Worldwide Exchange. I'll see you back at 7 tomorrow night.
Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts.